All right. I am very excited about our, our series that we're starting today. It is dealing with one of my favorite texts in the Bible. And you might say, well, this guy gets a new favorite text every week. Um, but I really do enjoy this, this text. It's one of them anyway. Um, we're going to be camping on 2 Peter 1. And now here's the, what we want you to do. Let me give you three challenges. First, make sure you bring your Bible every week. I know you've got it. I know we're going to have some stuff on the screen, but it's very, very helpful to see it in the context, to, to open it up yourself. So be bringing your Bible. Number two, bring a pen so you can take notes in the bulletin. Uh, number three, uh, third challenge. This one is for the uh, more not so faint at heart. Let me encourage you to memorize Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 uh, as we go through this series. And what we're going to do in each 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 message is we will have time to quote that. So next week, we're going to be going over chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So your assignment this week to memorize 2 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to quote it together. We won't embarrass you greatly anyway, if in fact you decide not to do this, if you don't have time, if memorizing is not your thing, all those excuses we use. But, but you can, if you do this, it's going to get deeper and we want after we've camped on this passage for uh, six, seven weeks, we want it to be our friend. We want to know it inside and out. It's a very significant text. Um, they tell me in NASA, well, if you've been watching the news, you know that NASA recently landed a, another rover on Mars. They've had two previous, Spirit and I think uh, Opportunity, and this last one that they landed was Curiosity, that was its name. And if you've been following, it's, I mean, they landed this thing just recently, the incredible amount of calculations and detail that they had to work out. Can you imagine landing something like this? Huge amount, it's the size of a car. Get it up in space and get it to Mars, and it has to land exactly at the right place. Otherwise, it's falling into a crater or it's falling onto a mountain sideways. Uh, the, the amount of detail that these guys at NASA had to work through, their calculations, they had to be incredibly precise. None of this, well, I think it's close enough. That's not going to work. It had to be very precise. You can imagine as they sent men and women into space. They couldn't get into a close enough, it might work. That's not, that's not going to cut it. It had to be incredibly precise. Your pharmaceutical companies mixing your drugs. You realize that, that close enough is not going to work. Precision is, is the difference between life and death. Likewise, in theology. You know, there are certain doctrines, perhaps, that we might do the best we can with in Scripture, but there are perhaps room for different interpretations in the body of Christ. But there are other doctrines that precision is key because if you're off a little bit, it can uh, result in abuse and it can result in uh, pragmatic failure and it can result in doubting God and what's going on and what went wrong. Uh, It can have eternal life and death consequences. Now, the, the... doctrine that we are most uh, focused on for these next few weeks, and especially this morning, is the doctrine of salvation. So this morning we're going to be looking at salvation. And I know what some of y'all are thinking. Oh good, I'm glad I'm here. You know, I've, I've been struggling with sleep and this sounds like the cure for insomnia. So I'm glad. Now, listen, we're going to be going over some technical stuff this morning. It's going to be a theological study, and so I need you to be there 100%. Um, picture with me, two kids, eight-year-old girls, 
And they're, they're just learning the piano. And both of them have to practice 20 minutes each day. And so girl A, she goes into the, the room and she sets her timer and she doesn't want to be there. And she bangs on She's watching her timer and she's been watching her. And she's looking out the window and she gets to that hard part and she just forgets that part and just keeps on going. And uh, as soon as that buzzer rings, she's out of there. Girl B, she comes, she sets her timer for 20 minutes. But when she's there, you know what? She's there 100% mentally as well. And she's focusing on that piece and she's trying to figure out what did the composer mean? What did he want to convey here? And she gets to that part where it's the three measures that are very difficult. She works through it very slowly. Both girls practice for 20 minutes. But after, let's say, 10 years of practice, which girl's really going to be the master pianist? Well, duh, the one that focused, Right. Now, the way I figure it, you've got to be here anyway, right? You're here. How about not just be here physically, but you're here 100% mentally, especially today, because what we're going over is a little bit uh, deep, and you need to be focusing on that. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me, 2 Peter chapter 1, as we get into our, as we get into our study. All right. All right. Um, let's look. We're going to look right into the, the, the text. We're going to start right in. Uh, as we do, let me give you some nomenclature that will help you as we talk about salvation. Okay, there are three aspects of salvation. First aspect, aspect is justification. Okay, this is what happens when you come to that time and point in history where you realize you're separated from God and that Jesus in his death and resurrection took care of, of payment for your sin and you trust your life to him. Uh, at that point, according to scripture, old things are passed away, new things have become, all of your sin is wiped away, past, present, future. You are justified just as if I'd never sinned. You're justified. That's what we think of when we think of salvation. But in Scripture, there's a second aspect of salvation that we are going to no- number one again, simply because they're all equally important and because our formatting system went kooky on us. But um, that is sanctification. And we're going to talk about that one this morning. But sanctification is that element of your life and mine between the time we are justified and the time we are glorified. We get to heaven. It's that sanctified section. We don't pay a whole lot of attention to that one sometimes. And then the third aspect of salvation is glorification. That's when we get to heaven one day. That's what we're hoping on. That's what we're looking forward to. Glorification. Now that middle section, again, we kind of a little bit fuzzy on. But our goal this morning is that we get the fuzz out. That we get some clarity around this, this doctrine of salvation. And this is, in fact, what Peter is addressing in chapter one of second Peter. Let's look right at it. We're going to make some observations of some of the passages. Again, this is going to be overview intro to the series. So, so stay with me. Work with me on this. Um, and we're going to give you some observations of these first four verses. Uh, but we're not going to unpack them to the extent that they really need to be unpacked. I'll let you do that on your own. But it says, number, verse one, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who through a right, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Just notice some things about this. First of all, if you have a faith in Jesus Christ, it's not because you've earned it. You don't deserve it. It's not because you're smarter. It's not because you're more discerning and you figured out stuff that other people haven't figured out. You have received this. It's a gift. The faith is a gift. 
And you don't get it based on your righteousness or based on your wisdom or based on your ability to figure stuff out. It's based on God's righteousness. That's pretty, pretty nice, isn't it? If it's my salvation is based on my righteousness, man, theoretically, I might be able to be saved one moment, but then I'm going to lose it. I'm losing it. Oh, I'm going to get saved again, then lose it. You're just hoping that you die when you, when you're doing okay, right? When you're, when you're, if your salvation is based on your righteousness, it's always in jeopardy and it's always fluctuating. Usually, if you're like me, it's always going to be in the basement. But it's based here, Peter says, on God's righteousness. You don't have to worry about it. It's not based on your ability to do stuff. I like that. He then goes on in verse 2. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He says, because of your, your understanding of, of the gospel... Grace and peace be yours in abundance. He says, muchness, plenty. It's, it's infinity amount of blessings on you. Not only do you have faith based on his righteousness, but he's going to pour, 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 pour blessings on you. We're not going to unpack all those blessings. We couldn't, but they sound good, don't they? Okay, I like that. Oh, yeah, mega blessings, that's good. Verse 3, he says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Look at that verse for just a second. You have everything you need for life and godliness. He didn't give you 98% of your salvation and you've got to work out the other 2%. He didn't give you 98% of your salvation and then he's going to give you an extra zap or an extra blessing or something later on and therefore you've got to be waiting for it because you're looking at stuff thinking, I think I'm okay, but boy, it would be sure nice if he zapped me with something else right now. You have everything you need, according to Peter, for life. And you've got it all. You've got it all. It's not based on your righteousness. It's based on his. He gave you the faith. He gave you blessings, eternal and infinite. And, and you've got it all right now. This is good. This is good news. And then, but he goes on. He says, through these, it's his, his glorious goodness. He has given us his very great and precious promises. So that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Not that, not that we become God. The divine uh, in, environment. We get to go to heaven one day is what he's telling us. And escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. He says on top of everything else. On top of the fact that you've got a faith that's based on his righteousness. You know, Mongo blessings coming your way. You've got everything you need. On top of all that, God promises, I'm going to take you to be with me in heaven, in a place where there's no fallenness one day. Now, if you were Southern Baptist, what are you doing at this point? Yeah, kind of, sort of. We got some people with vestiges. Uh, yes, amen, that's right, it's, it's there. And if Peter would have stopped here, you know what? It would have been a great epistle. You know, it would have been a short epistle, but we could all memorize it and be wonderful. But Peter doesn't stop there. Peter keeps going. Peter keeps going. Verses 5 uh, through 7, he says, For this very reason... Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. And you say, whoa, 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 make every effort? Sounds like work. I don't know. I want, I want to be doing that. But you've you got to understand this this. Nuance of what Peter's doing here. The urgency of his words. I mean, if Peter was going to tell you this face to face, he would pull, you know, parents, if you want your kids to really get it, he would grab you by the shoulders. He'd say, here, here, look right, look right here, right here, right here. Right. Don't screw this up. You've got to get this down. You can't mess this. You've got to get it. And the veins are popping out of his neck. Incredible urgency. 
And you might stop and go, whoa, 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 hang on, Peter, 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 chill there, big man. I don't, what is, what is the, what is the deal? I mean, you just told us that our salvation is not based on my goodness, it's based on him. And you just told me, I'm as good as there, and it's based on his promises and lots of blessings, and it has nothing to do with me. Why do I need to add stuff to my faith? What is this about? I mean, this idea of adding stuff to your faith sounds kind of like AP classes in, in high school, doesn't it? If that's your propensity and you're gifted that way, good, take them. That's cool. More power to you. But bottom line is we all graduate, you know, whether you take them or not. So why would you do that to yourself? And I think that's kind of what he's saying for our faith. Uh, that's why maybe that's what Peter's saying. That's what we're thinking. Uh, why? What is with this adding to our faith noise? Um, there's an incredible irony that Peter brings out here. You just got through telling everybody you're, you're set, but now you better add to it. We kind of, as we try to understand what's going through Peter's mind, understanding the salvation thing, Genesis 2-7. Stay with me. We're going to give some dots and we're going to connect them. Genesis 2-7, it says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This breath of life is not just oxygen. Uh, the mammals, the animals, they're all breathing, but they're not God's breath in them. That word for breath is the same word as spirit. If we would diagram it, perhaps it would look like this. When, when God created man, he gave man part of his self, his spirit, who he is. Whatever else being created in the image of God means, at least it means this, that we have the capacity to be with God. We've got part of God within us. But you know the story. Adam and Eve were not necessarily interested in chasing after God. They weren't after, interested in having a God. They decided they were going to be God. Now, this is what idolatry is in Scripture. We think idolatry, you know, got the little statues. And, uh, that can be it. But idolatry is really anything other than God ruling your life. And like Adam and Eve, often we want to be it. We want to be the ones to determine right and wrong. We want to be the ones to call the shots. And when they did, according to Scripture, if we were to diagram it, what would happen, what has happened, according to Scripture, is spiritually we died. And we now have what's called an old nature. Paul will call this the flesh. The flesh is not here in Paul's mind. The flesh is that old nature. It's that old spirit. It's a propensity from Adam and Eve on. Rebellion, anarchy from God. Every one of us have it. It is not demon possession. It is not being as bad as you can be. People with the old nature ruling can be kind and they can be nice. And, and we know of people like this who don't know God who are nice people. You can be that way. It simply means running my life with God not part of it. Running my life on my own. It's the old nature. That's what transpired. That's what, what happened with, within us. Now, let's say one day you're cruising through uh, life and, and still the vestiges of God's spirit are there to the extent where you stop once in a while and you look up and you go, is this all there is? Is there not a God? You know you were created for more than what you see. And so you, 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 you come to realize, maybe hear what they call the gospel, that God does Love us. We were created for him. He visited this planet 2,000 years ago in, in, with a, in a man named Jesus who died on the cross. But because he was perfect, 
When he died on the cross, he was really taking the penalty for the stuff that separated me from God. And so you get to a point, you, you recognize that, and you submit your life to him, and you say, oh God, thank you for, for clearing that up. And I give you my life. And at that point, when you do, this is what, what Scripture says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It says, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance into the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Second Corinthians 5, 5 says, now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. If we would diagram it, it would look like this. We've got his spirit now and, and hit the button thingy one more time. And our sin nature, according to Scripture, is crucified with him. Now, this is where it gets a little bit confusing, so stay with me. Though it is crucified, it is still, in a sense, alive. It's hanging on the cross, but it's alive and barking out orders. Uh, Back in 1999, do you know, since it's kind of that time, at least in fantasy world, do you know who the second person drafted for the NFL was? Donovan McNabb. Good. Maybe someone thought that. Okay, Donovan McNabb by the Philadelphia Eagles. He was drafted to be their franchise quarterback, and for 11 years he was. For 11 years he led them to five NFC championships and to a Super Bowl. But then, two years back, the Eagles traded him to the Washington Redskins. It's an in-conference team. Now, what that meant was Donovan, as a Redskin, would be playing against the Eagles twice a year. Can you imagine the first time that Donovan McNabb, and the, as, a, as a Washington Redskin, walked into Lincoln Financial Field. And he gets on the field and he sees all these guys running around in green and white. And, and he knows, he's got relationship with these guys. He, he spent years with them on the bus and in hotels and in and, and, and some real tight games and through family crises in the locker room. And they're out there going, hey, Donovan, here, throw it to me. Hey, I'm wide open. And he's thinking... He worked for, for hours throwing to that guy. And so he hears him. And so he instinctively looks to the Eagles' sideline. And there's Andy Reid, the only coach Donovan McNabb had ever known in the NFL up to that point. And, and Andy Reid is looking at him screaming, McNabb, do this, McNabb, do that. And he's going, oh, okay. I'm and he, he remembers. This is all he's heard. There's the whole coaching staff, and they've had a huge impact on him, making him the player that, that he was, and they're yelling for him to do things. And so you can see the guy's going out for the pass, and he's getting all confused, and all of a sudden he looks down. He says, ah, oh, hang on, I'm wearing a red jersey now. And those guys are wearing green and white. And so he might look over at, at Andy Reid and say, Andy Reid, <laughs> you can't talk to me anymore like that. I don't have to listen to you. One day I had to listen to you, not anymore. As believers, we've we've changed jerseys, but sometimes we still listen to the old coach. We let him call the shots. We let let him determine what we're going to do. We listen to his threats. We go, okay, okay. And that's all we had known perhaps in life up to the time we've come to know Christ. But still, his voice is ringing through our mind and we go that route. We do that. Galatians 5, 16. on It says, so I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature for the sinful nature's desire desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you not do not do what you want. 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. There's this war going on inside. And we got the Spirit. We know that. And then we've got our old nature still kind of hanging on, telling us what we're supposed to be doing. Now, let me share with you another illustration that's been very helpful for me over the years. I think it makes this a little bit clearer. Okay, that's you, the green guy on, on the left of the screen. You've lost some weight, and maybe you're ecologically, you know, uh, environmentally on top of things these days. But this is you, and you're living your life, and everything is cool. And then one day you come to know Christ. Now, this idea of sanctification, just to make things a little more confusing, there are two, two sides of it. There's positional sanctification, which, which makes all the sense in the world, but that is you are made perfect. If you think about it, if your sins have been forgiven, past present sins and future, then there's no sins attributed to you anymore. You're perfect, right? 1 Corinthians 6.11. He says, and that is, Paul just listed a bunch of sin. And he says, and that's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. That means to be made perfect. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He doesn't say you are being sanctified. You are in the process of being made perfect. He says, oh, no, no, no. You, you were made it. You're already there. Hebrews 10.10. 10, and by that will, we've been made holy. You have been made. You're not being made holy. You have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On top of your sins, all God, God's righteousness is on you right now. It's an amazing thing. Ephesians 2.6, it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Positionally, you are as good as in heaven right now. There are no degrees of perfection, right? If there, there can be no such thing as degrees of perfection. You are perfect. And you're going, yes. You know, I know it. I know it. I told my spouse she didn't believe me, but I know it. I know it. And if you look in the mirror or as you lay on your bed at night, you say, you know what? I don't believe it either. I know me. I know that I am not like that at all. Right. Enter in the second aspect of sanctification. Positional sanctification or, or, or excuse me, practical sanctification. Let's see if we've got that down. Positional sanctification, you got the yellow line at the top. Practical sanctification, ah, there's the green line that's going up and down. It's all of those, those sort of things. Um, good illustration. It is, it drove this home a little bit for me. I used to, when I was at Moody, I worked in Cabrini Green. Huge projects, it's gone now. But uh, terrible place. The police wouldn't go in there at night unless there was a special call. It was just a bad, bad place. It's like 98 or 99%, I forget what it was, single Parents, it was just awful. The gangs, official gangs, would not be a part in the projects. But I was in there working uh, in the day, daytime with, with the kids, and one of the little guys I was working with, probably eight or nine, um, ice cream truck came. And so he ran to the ice cream truck and reached in and pulled out some coins, and in his hand also were a handful of pills. I'm thinking, do you take drugs? And this kid looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, yeah, don't you? He didn't understand somebody who did not take drugs. I mean, he's living in, in the worst of the worst. 
So guns and drugs and immorality is just what life is. He doesn't know life outside of that. Now, can you imagine the same kid, 15 years old, suddenly a very well-to-do couple comes and adopts him and brings him to the palace and says, you are now a prince. Well, you can imagine they do stuff in the palace a little bit different than they do it in the ghetto. But you also need to know that this kid, one day he was in the ghetto, the next day he's in the palace. Suddenly, just because he was adopted, all of his thinking doesn't change immediately. His values are not changed. His language probably is not changed immediately. Some of the things he, he longed for or hoped or the way he viewed life does not change immediately. He has to get there. He has to get his, his practice, has to begin to match his new identity. And what Peter is saying, saying you are in the heavenlies. You are perfect. Positionally, you are in heaven. You're perfect. Now make your earthly practice match your heavenly position. He says, in the heavenlies. You know what? There's no wrong motivation. You don't have any wrong motivation in the heavenlies. No deception. No hoping someone figures it out the wrong way. No, no word twisting. Make your earthly practice match your heavenly position. He says, in the heavenlies. You know, in the heavenlies, there's no gossip and there's no bitterness and there's no vengeance and there's no lust and there's no laziness. Make your earthly practice match your heavenly position in the heavenlies. You know, in the heavenlies, you've got one quest in life. You thirst. Your, your whole existence, as a matter of fact, is, is val- validated on one, one thing, and that is your relationship to God. He says, make your earthly practice match your heavenly position. That's what Peter is saying. That's what this whole text is about. And he's going to give God's prescription for how to do that, for transformation. You've got to love this because part of our, I mean, our mission statement is to transform Erie by introducing people to a transformational relationship with Jesus. We're not looking for converts. We're looking for disciples, transformed people. And God's going to give us a prescription for transformation right here. The first word he mentions I think it's in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. This word goodness, which is uh, kind of a generic word. It's an umbrella word. It's going to all the other words are underneath it. And this is what goodness is. I mean, Genesis one thirty one. God saw all that he made and it was very good. Well, what does it mean to be very good? When God looked at creation when he first made it, this is what good means. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's being exactly what it's supposed to be. There was no, no almost there or 99.9%. Everything was going 100% exactly what it was supposed to be doing. People were thinking exactly what they were supposed to be thinking. The plants, everything, the stars were doing exactly what he made them to do. That's what good is. So Peter here is saying, for your life and mine, our earthly practice we need to make sure that it is doing, that we are thinking, that we are being exactly what God made us to be. That our earthly practice reflects and matches our, our heavenly position. That's what he's, that's what he's going after. Uh, in Second Peter 1.10, he says, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. This is why this is so important that we do this, y'all. It's not just, we don't want to just dump this one because we're going to heaven anyway, right? Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. You might say, whoa, 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 what is that about? 
What do you mean? I thought my calling and election was based on God's righteousness. And God, what does this make my election sure? I mean, how much do I have to add? How many things do I have to do? And by when do I have to do them? And you've got to know, you don't make your calling and election sure to God. God's not up in heaven going, yeah, I wonder if this person's really saved or not. God's got it figured out. He knows if you're in or not. You're making your calling and election sure to you and to uh, uh, other folk in this world who are, are watching. This is very, very, very important because I think what Peter's telling us, don't hook up your assurance. And my goodness, we do this in the evangelical world all the time. Don't hook up your assurance to an event. One day I went to a Bible club and people want to get saved and I raised my hand and come on forward and someone brought me in the back room and prayed with me and therefore I met. That's it. That may be true. That may be the start of it. But Peter's saying, don't hook your assurance to an event. Don't hook your assurance to an experience. I went to retreat and I was going through a hard time and I went outside and I saw the stars. I knew there was a God somewhere and he cared for me. He loved me and and I just knew everything was going to be good. Well, that's wonderful. God speaks to us through nature that he does in that regard. But don't hook up your assurance, Peter is saying, to, to an experience. Hook up your assurance to evidence. And so, so, so he's saying, if you add these things to your life, positional sanctification, you are growing. You, your faith, your confidence, your assurance will grow deeper along with it. You know, if you try to have assurance based on anything else other than the evidence, other than adding to your faith, you're just not going to have it. It's not going to be there. No wonder we might question God. You know, was it uh, several years ago? My wife got into a greenhouse type stuff. I'm not a greenhouse type of person. Uh, but she got a, we got a lamp, special lamp. We got all these little pod things. We planted our seeds and we watered them and fertilized them and stuff. We turned the light on and off when it was supposed to be. And most of the things sprouted. I, uh, you know, I'm from Chicago. I thought food came from the supermarket. So I was like, whoa, check this out. But some of them didn't grow. Now, if I would have brought you in and said, hey, check out our, 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 our new life here. Wow, look at the new life. And they'd say, you might say, well, it's, it's, some of them aren't living, Mark. I said, no, no, they're all living. So they got the light going and fertilizing. And you said, hang on, Mark, key rule of horticulture. If there's no growth, there's no life. Key rule in spiritual formation. If there's no growth, there's no, should be no assurance of, of life. As a Christian, we like the yellow line. We, we like the positional sanctification we're in, salvation, justification. But this second part, which we struggle with it. And sometimes, if in fact we decide to have no thirst for that line at all, sanctification, Peter would let us know. You have no evidence. You have no proof of your salvation. That's what we've come down to. In 1749, huge deal hit America. The historians call it the second great, uh, first great awakening. Uh, East Coast, man, they had shut down brothels and bars and all kinds of stuff, not because the church was picketing, but because spirit moved and nobody was going to those places anymore. And they weren't getting any business. And so they all shut down and, and, and the churches exploded. But then after a few years, you know what? A handful of these folks started going back. And so people came to Jonathan Edwards and they said, Edwards, what about these people's salvation? They came and they were really into it and all, but now they've gone back. What's the deal with them? And Edwards wrote a booklet entitled a treatise on religious affections and this is what he says he's trying to answer that question he says the supreme proof of a true conversion is holy affections zeal for holy things 
longing after God, longings after holiness, desires for purity. Without that middle line, that sanctification line, if that's not there, there's no thirst for that. Edwards would say there's a true conversion not happening in that place. Now, let me mention just a couple things. First of all, we don't inspect each other's fruit, right? We like to do that. We don't, don't inspect others' fruit. Just work on your own. Number two, you know when fruit starts to grow, it starts off, or it doesn't start so real small. Can't even see it. We like big mango fruit, but sometimes it just, it just starts off small. So you look at yourself and you go, but am I growing? Does the fruit, do I have fruit? Do I have any evidence? I don't know if I've got evidence. Well, fruit starts off small. God's working in your life might be so. And then listen to these words from Dr. Harry Ironside. What excellent, excellent words. Uh, he says, now test yourself in this way. You once lived in sin and loved it. Do you now desire deliverance from it? You were once self-confident and trusting in your own fancy goodness. Do you now judge yourself a sinner before God? You once sought to hide from God and rebelled against his authority. Do you now look up to him, desiring to know him and yield yourself to him? If you can honestly say yes to these questions, you have repented. Your attitude is altogether different than what it once was. You confess you are a sinner, unable to cleanse your own soul, and you're willing to be saved in God's way. That's repentance. And remember, it's not the amount of repentance that counts. It is the fact that you turn from self to God that puts you in the place where his grace avails through Jesus Christ. I like this next line. It says, strictly speaking, not one of us has ever repented enough. None of us has realized the enormity of our guilt as God sees it. But when we judge ourselves and trust the Savior whom he has provided, we are saved through his merits. As recipients of his loving kindness, repentance will be deepened and will continue day by day as we learn more and more of his infinite worth and our own unworthiness. What he's saying is this. If you are worried, saying, I thirst for him, I want to know him, but do I want to know him enough? And I'm struggling because sometimes they have doubts and sometimes I fall back into the stupid sin. And just the fact that you're worried about that, Ironside would say, proves that you've repented, that you're there. Because you know what? If, if you, if you uh, did not, had not repented, you just wouldn't care. Just the fact that you're concerned shows that you're, shows that you're in. The goal with this study is not for us to throw ourselves into some kind of despair about our salvation as much as it's saying, you know what, I need to add to my faith. And he's going to go through and show us his prescription. Let me end with this, senior citizen. And some of y'all are, are models to me. Uh, at this stage in your life, you are seeking to add to your faith. Uh, but let me challenge those of you who perhaps are in the senior category who are not. Please do not coast till you get to heaven. Your goal, according to God's word, is to add to your faith now. Mom and dad, you got a lot of little kids at home. You're busy as who knows what. I understand that. You don't have time to add to your faith. But if Peter was here, he'd grab you by the shoulders and say, don't mess this up. You have to add to your faith. It's the best thing you can do for your, for your kids. You've got to do it. Student. Please, please don't be thinking that, that life starts once I get out of high school, once I get out of college. Uh, you've got an incredible opportunity right now to add to your faith. And as you do, your assurance will grow, Peter lets us know. Your godliness will grow. Your understanding of God will grow. So this, this series, would you join me with praying? Lord, would you help me to add to my 
to my faith? Would you help me to make my earthly practice match my heavenly position?